Today's episode is sponsored by none other than Study Notes ABA. Guess freaking what? The collective for May testers is opening in a week and a half. Get ready for the best time of your entire life while you're studying. Is that even possible, Casey? It's not. It is so much fun. So much learning, real life relatable examples. It starts on March 9th, but registration will open in the next week and a half. So stay tuned to Study Notes ABA Facebook and Study Notes ABA Instagram and join us for a 10 week ride of your life. life. Jinx. Hey. (laughs) It's behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. And we are back. And it is episode 35. Are you ready for this rhyme? 35 and barely feeling alive. Is something I was like that? Say, is Liat even freaking alive? We don't know ever. Your eyes are still shut. You look like a newborn baby hamster. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. My heart was hurting last night. I think I've just been working too hard. I like to talk about self-care, but I don't like to act on it. I like to talk about doggy training. My dog still shit on the carpet. This is true life. I'm a BCBA. I edition. love it. Always right. late, never never ready, printing her outline 10 minutes late. It's cool. You know what? We do it for the people. Every week we got to get you an episode and I don't care if I have to drag her out of her bed with like all the crazy emojis. I have to text her husband all these different response classes to get her the hell out of bed. We are here. Here I am. Very excited to share today's um, review of the day, which I think is super, super cool. If you think back to, we did an episode on hostage negotiation, right? And we talked about um, this TED talk that this guy, Scott Telema, he's a police lieutenant and he did this awesome TED talk on hostage negotiation. And, you know, and this he's like smart when- AF, like he's super educated in hostage negotiation. Whereas your girls over here, we aren't. We just picked parts we liked out of it behaviorally. We sure did. And it was back when Liat was ready to like completely leave her whole field and go become one. Um, but yeah, so he actually reached out to both of us on LinkedIn, which is, I'm just starting to get into LinkedIn. But he said, Super cool to have my work featured on the Behavior Bitches podcast. Looking to learn about hostage negotiation? Tune in because they've got it down. Well, all thanks to your TED Talk. Anyways, Liat Sachs and Casey McDaniel, the podcast hosts, are engaging and a lot of fun as they get into details of high stakes negotiation and how you can use it every day. This is just one in the series of episodes focusing on applied behavior analysis. If this sounds interesting, subscribe and enjoy their work. And you know what I love that he did, which we should do at some point, which we never have. He goes quick finds at four minutes and 50 seconds. Content picks up 14 minutes and 45 seconds. Get ready to laugh out loud. 26 minutes. Love the discussion of practice and feedback. So important. Hashtag negotiation, hashtag rated R, hashtag behavior bitches. Scott Chalema, thank you so much for reaching out. We can't wait to collaborate future and have you actually come on and be the professional to talk about hostage negotiation. I mean, I feel so fulfilled hearing that he's saying these girls know what they're talking about. You know, we did do a good job breaking it down behaviorally. I will say that that's kind of our forte. 
No, we did, but it's also, I mean, our research went as far as some TED Talks and a few articles, you know? And if he, this real deal, I mean, I already checked his background, Harvard, blah, 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 blah. And he's saying that we did it. I'm feeling pretty sexy, even though I can't open my eyes this morning. Absolutely. Also, you know where to follow us. It's the same behavior bitches on all social media platforms and our website and join our Patreon if you'd like to support us there. Anyways, we're very excited for today's topic. And I just um, want to say that, Casey, I'm so sorry. When you said the Instagram handle, she meant Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast, and our website, BehaviorBitches.com. Casey was trying to take my job, and when she does it, she just does not do it nearly as well as me. So here I am, and we are excited for today. And today we're so excited that we have to put a disclaimer. Yes. Okay? You know we got to disclaim this. So. We will be talking about serial killers, rape, torture from a clinical perspective. Not good for little ears. I know a lot of you love to have your little ones listening, but if you want them to sleep, I probably would advise that you don't let your little ones listen to this one. Please do not play in the workplace. Duh. And if it is a sensitive topic for you, we just want to let you know. Also, we are not professional serial killers or professionals <laughs> in serial killer psychology. So we are not giving any professional advice. Casey, give us a bio of our guest today. I'm super pumped. First off, we want to thanks, uh, say thank you to our listener, Ravel, for hooking us up with this um, guest. And it's been a long time in the making of trying to lock this down. Um, so let's talk a little bit about who's coming on today. So our guest, she got her master's and doctorate in clinical forensic psychology at Alient, I can't pronounce that, International University. Alient, I think. She has worked with adults with forensic background, so substance abuse, probation, parole, sex offenders. She began working with sex offenders with intellectual disabilities and autism spectrum disorders, and she became super interested in ABA. So she went back for a second master's degree and is currently working um, with ABA in early intervention. She is currently a licensed psychologist and BCBA. How impressive. Um, so we are very, very excited to introduce Mary to the show. Welcome, Mary. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. Thank you, you for coming. Welcome. And thank you for being such a team sport. You know, through all our emails, there was something mixed up that we got her name as Mona. So we were saying like, hey, Mona, we would love to have you on the show, blah, blah, blah. Talk to her on the phone. Yeah, Mona, whatever. Literally so text messages, group messages have been going back for like a month that we've been calling her Mona. And she and signed she her email. Off, signed off, <laughs> Mona Mary. So before today's show, I was like, okay, just want to know, do you want to go by Mona or do you want to go by Mary? She's like, Mary's my name. I was like, okay. She said, I, I, I don't even know where the Mona came from. I thought you guys gave me that name. So she's such a good sport that she allowed us to call her Mona for the last two months. So welcome, <laughs> Mona Mary. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm just rolling with it. That's my new name now. <laughs> We love it. Love so it. Mona, uh, we just gave a little bio about you. Is there um, anything else that mm -hmm. you want to um, elaborate on? Um, I know you're definitely going to give us a great description of what forensic psychologist or psychology is. Yeah, um, that's pretty much it. Um, and 
forensic psychology is basically just the application of psychology uh, to the legal field. Um, so applying clinical skills like assessment, treatment, um, evaluation, um, kind of all the things that we do um, either to institutions like the judicial correctional system um, or to individuals involved with the law ranging from law enforcement to attorneys and judges to inmates and parolees. Um, and a lot of research within forensic psychology is also applicable, uh, like eyewitness reliability, testimony suggestibility, uh, competency to testify, things like that. Very so interesting. Cool. So today's behavioral principles, before we get any further, I just wanted to get you guys a little bit excited before, because how cool is this? Anyone who's into that murder porn, Dateline, my favorite murder, we are trying to bring it to you here live on the Behavior Bitches. But first, our behavioral principles are functions of behavior. Of course, we got sensory attention, escape, and access to tangibles. We're going to talk about behavior change interventions. We're going to talk about history of reinforcement. How long is the history? How long has someone been doing whatever behavior they're doing? We're going to talk about motivating operations, and we're going to talk about differential punishment for different crimes. That's pretty cool because we always talk about Differential reinforcement. So let's change it up. All right, let's get started. All right, Mary. So you say you have like you have this background in forensics, right? So and- you say. So you say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, <I'm not> sure. <laughs> well, she also said her name was Mona, so we don't. We're not really sure who we have today, but just kidding. So let's. Can you walk us through? I know we wanted to really focus today's episode on like the four functions of murder with serial killers. So let's start with attention and let's, can you break that down for us? Yeah, well, attention is basically the social enforcement. Um, So a lot of times we exhibit behavior because we want that social enforcement, uh, whether that be a positive or negative thing, um, according to the person that's actually quite subjective. Like social disapproval, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That would be the negative, right? So you could have being reinforced, let's see, through um, media coverage, right? So different types of, or fans following these serial killers, that could be that positive reinforcement. Also media coverage, you know, talking about the negative of the um, of the behaviors could be that social disapproval, which is still reinforcing to some people. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That That's the problem. Sometimes yeah. I think these people who... Um, you know, commit these major murders. Let's think Ted Bundy, Zodiac Killer, Boston Strangler. I mean, look at them. They even have their own names now, the Boston Strangler, right? Like they are, this is technically Mm -hmm. negative attention, but to them it's attention. They're now famous. Yeah, yeah. And you're totally right. It's media coverage, it's interviews, um, all these documentaries that are dedicated to basically their behavior, the crimes that they've committed, um, the fans and groupies, um, a lot of romantic admirers, actually, um, and also signatures that the perpetrators leave kind of like a calling card to law enforcement and to society in general as a way of ensuring that they receive the attention that they want. Um, and you bring up some great examples, actually. Um, the Zodiac Killer. Uh, this was a serial killer who was actually never identified. Um, and he continually reached out to the press and law enforcement uh, with these really elaborate letters and cards and ciphers, actually, for them to solve. Um, and he also had a signature, and he attempted to disseminate his work through that signature, um, just kind of promoting himself, essentially. 
Um, and we had the BTK Strangler. Um, he was another serial killer who um, also sent letters to the police and news media. And he actually chose his own name, BTK, uh, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. Wow. Um, and Ugh. then we have these other just ones that really just take the media by storm. Um, uh, David Berkowitz, uh, also known as Son of Sam, um, who went on eight separate shooting sprees in New York. And while he was evading the police, he um, left them letters, uh, reaching out to them and to the media. And he also chose his own name. Uh, so he introduced himself as the Son of Sam. Um, and through the use of letters in his, um, or the use of symbols in his letters, um, the news coverage for this behavior became just really extreme. And even after his capture, there were publishers actually reaching out to him, trying to get his exclusive story. Um, so he's actually earning an income um, based off of the behaviors. Oh, That's insanity to me. I mean, these are disseminators. I mean, if only they understood ABA, they could be disseminating our science and get it out there. We need a replacement behavior. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and just, I, I mean, there's also just other ones like. Tell us um, more. Richard Tell Ramirez. us more. Yeah. 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 Um, so this guy, um, actually, the media named him. So the media really reinforced his behaviors. Um, and he was a serial rapist and killer. And he actually followed the news coverage of his own behavior while he was on the run, while he was continuing on this spree. Um, and again, leaving symbols as a signature. And this guy really soaked it up. Um, after his capture, he promoted himself even more by uh, speaking directly to the porters. Um, he was dressing up for his role as a self-proclaimed Satanist, uh, dressing up in all black. Um, and he was not only a media sensation, but he also drew a, a following um, and a group of admirers. And he actually eventually ended up marrying one of them while he was in prison. Um, so talking about reinforcing, right? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And then lastly, I'm sure everybody knows about Charles Manson, and he just started a whole culture, actually. And there's books, documentaries, music, um, movies that have been made um, as a result. And all these are examples of how the function behind some criminal behaviors can include the need for intention. Um, and even though these crimes have been committed a long time ago, there's still so much attention given to these behaviors, which unfortunately leads to more of these behaviors occurring for the same reasons. Which is interesting that they involve the police or, you know, the government, whatever it is. It's like they're soliciting that reinforcement themselves. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to get it. But mm -hmm. the same way that we teach a kid to come up and say, like, solicit reinforcement, like, oh, hey, I finished the mm -hmm. worksheet. How did I do? Right. They are literally going yeah. out and soliciting this attention like i yeah. made this really cool code teacher tell me what you think i'm gonna give you this code and i know you're gonna react because it's talking about how i'm gonna murder more people yeah yeah it's almost as if they didn't get enough attention um and a lot of times they leave a signature uh, exactly for that reason because um these crimes occur across county lines state lines um and sometimes it's not even linked together and people don't know there's a serial on the loose um so when they start leaving a signature uh people start connecting and then they realize oh serial killer and then of course everybody jumps on that and it gets advertised um and then they get that attention um and essentially taking credit for all of the um murders that they've committed uh, right. why do the work if you don't get the credit right <laughs> which is crazy because you know a lot of people like the idea is i mean i watch a lot of dateline 
Um, doesn't make me a forensic psychologist, but I think I am. But a lot of it is, you know, people trying to cover up their crimes. These are actually the opposite. They're actually trying to get attention for, hey, you're not going to catch me, but I want you to know who I am. I think this also brings up uh, another thing of like the cult, right? This like cult following, especially what you had said, Mary, about Charles Manson, that whole, you know, following. Um, the more people that are following and why, right? Like, it's is it a sense of belonging? Is it, you know, just uh, some kind of culture that they're like longing for? They're in like a state of deprivation for maybe some attention, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Cults are a whole nother thing that are fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Love that. Love me some cults. I listen to a lot of podcasts on that. Okay, so we spoke about the one function of attention, but now we go to the next function, which is automatic sensory yeah. or some form of stimulation. And can you talk to us a little bit about that or some which famous um murderers we've heard about who have done it for what we see to be the function of automatic or sensory yeah um so automatic reinforcement um so this is where we see just really perverse crimes um where the perpetrator commits homicide because they enjoy it um holmes and deberger are two criminologists who study a lot of these um and they came up with four typologies that uh, basically categorize a serial homicide um the first being visionary serial killers um those who have lost touch with reality and may have psychosis or schizophrenia with command hallucinations that direct them to kill uh second typology um, mission-oriented serial killers who commit crimes as a result of what they believe to be their life's purpose and the third is uh, the hedonistic serial killers whose function is murder and enjoyment um, and just the thrill of it. Uh, the last are power and control serial seekers who gain satisfaction from controlling and torturing their victims. Um, and Ted Bundy um, was one of those hedonistic serial killers who uh, really did it seemingly for the automatic reinforcement. Um, he kidnapped, raped, and murdered um, just a lot of young women. And he not only did all that, but he would return to his crime scenes uh, to continue that cycle. And he would groom the bodies of his victims and engage in sexual acts uh, with the corpses. And he also took pictures and decapitated some of his victims to keep their heads as mementos, um, all for future enjoyment. Um, so here's a rather extreme case of serial killing for stimulation. Uh. Oh my God, I'm like, my mouth is just dropped open like, oh, gosh, things that you, uh, you know, you wonder what the hell happened to that person, that that is something that they would find automatically reinforcing. Right? Wait, is he still alive? Uh, no, he's not. So, Mary, you mentioned in um, the outline act versus process focused homicides. What does that mean? Mm hmm. Um, so act-focused homicides are committed quickly and efficiently, um, so they focus on the act itself. Um, so visionary and mission-oriented serial killers um, are act-focused. Uh, Process-focused homicides are more of the hedonistic and power control serial killers, and those are the ones who uh, commit murders slowly and methodically, um, focusing more on the process of it instead, and that is where they seek their enjoyment. Wow. This is just crazy okay now is that everything for the automatic section that we're going to talk about function yes okay now let's talk about access 
Access, guys. You know that function when we're talking about a little kid tantruming because they wanted the iPad or they wanted the lollipop in the store? Yeah, well, we're talking about that, but with serial killers. We're not talking about it with a lollipop or an iPad. What could be the access or tangible component as to why someone murders Mary? <laughs> uh, well, these are the serial killers like um, assassins, uh, gang-related crimes, substance involvement, um, and a specific subtype of hedonistic serial killers are um, comfort killers who seek comfort in life by committing murder, uh, whether it's for material wealth, privilege, status. Um, so assassins are paid. Uh, Gang-related crimes lead to status and privilege, and substances can be a strong motivation or an MO for an addicted individual uh, to commit murder. And an example for this function is the case of Dr. Holmes, um, who is actually one of the first American serial killers in the 1890s. Um, he only confessed to 27 of the murders, uh, but investigators claim he may have murdered up to the hundreds. And he actually opened a hotel of some sort uh, where he equipped it with secret passages, trapdoors, torture chambers, and a kiln to cremate the bodies. Um, and he seduced women and became engaged to them in order to gain access to their money, property, um, and the insurance payouts uh, after he murdered them. And this is just one of the many examples of homicides happening because of access to these preferred items. Holy crap. Did the insurance companies not notice that he's getting life insurance payouts every three weeks? Yes, I think they finally caught on. And he also <laughs> made all of his employees um, uh, take on life insurance. And he also um, targeted his employees as well. But he would marry them to get it? Because I don't understand. The employer doesn't typically get money when someone dies yeah he targeted both women and his employees basically anybody who could get his hands on what a sick fuck <laughs> but i mean that involves some like and then what i've read about serial killers is that they're typically you know really smart you have i mean to think of how to manipulate this you know the environment the people all these things that involves some level of you know high iq right yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of serial killers are uh, quite intelligent. Unfortunately, they're just applying their intelligence in <laughs> the wrong way. Maladaptive for sure. Need a replacement behavior, <laughs> five sure. Yes, they do. But what's going to be equal? What's going to be equally reinforcing for them? If we want to talk about replacement behaviors, what can we find that? Maybe being a butcher? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. I like that one. But let like them it. like be a butcher, but like secretly and leave clues about it. So at least it's still that chase. And they're maybe like being a butcher for the homeless and providing food and just don't, they don't know where it came from. These That's are just smart. ideas. Oh, I'm not, there you go. <laughs> you know, I am a very talented behavior analyst. I'm really able to think outside the box. I'm going to get these guys, if they just reach, actually, I don't want them reaching out to me. Never mind. Good not, Lord, putting no. that, not putting that out there in the public. Sorry. No. But I think it's really interesting when we talk about these. I know we didn't get to the fourth function yet, but what I think is interesting is, and Mary briefly mentioned it, is, you know, we have to look at the MOs here. What is that background information and a four-term contingency. Why are people doing what they're doing? What's the MO? Like, do they not have food on the table? So they have to go kill someone so that they could, you know, take their money to get food? Or do they, have they been 
um, deprived of sex for a long time. So they feel like they have to go murder someone to have sex with their corpse. I mean, gross and gruesome, but truth. And, you know, or have they felt understimulated for a long time, right? Background information. They're like, I need some stimulation. Let me go kill someone. What's more stimulating than that? Um, so I think it's really important to keep in mind these MOs that are playing into, you know, the value of the reinforcer for them at that time. Mary, I have a question for you. Um, you know, there's a whole, you know, debate nature versus nurture, right? Like, are you born a serial killer? Mm -hmm. Does your environment shape you to be a serial killer? Um, and I read a lot about like, you know, the first, I don't know, whatever, couple weeks of like birth, like, you know, getting that connection with the mother, um, having the attention. Do you have anything to talk about um, with that topic, like childhood trauma or um, lack of attention with a parent? I definitely think so. And I think both kind of play a role. Um, and a lot of people who study these serial killers actually find a lot of trauma and abuse and neglect in their childhood and young adult life, um, which kind of makes sense. Um, if you think about it, that an individual obviously is missing on something or, you know, something has happened that kind of led to their criminal actions or what we call the antecedent. Um, it just might be something that's a little bit longer and drawn out over the lifetimes. Uh, maybe it's, you know, the first 20 years of their lifetime where they were abused or they weren't um, getting stimulated enough. Um, and finally, it led to these really extreme behaviors. But um, and that's just one example of uh, serial killers. Wow. Yeah. So there's also some imitation possibly not saying that their parents are necessarily murderers, but, you know, in terms of engaging in crime or, you know, or not getting attention from their parents. Maybe this is like, well, I bet this will get me attention. I mean, it's really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very extreme case of um, getting a caregiver's attention. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Some people go to extreme lengths for that, right? Especially when you're, um, you know, your first few weeks of birth, you you really need that connection. And if you don't have that, or you're born to like a, you know, a parent without empathy or ability to, you know, protect or nurture, um, and growing up without that can lead to some pretty crazy behaviors. Absolutely. That is crazy stuff. I mean, this stuff is just fascinating to me. But when I hear about the details of these crimes, I'm like, ugh. I mean, I like listen to these murder things before I go to bed at night. You do? Yeah, like that's what I play. <laughs> Eight line or like 60 minutes or my favorite murder. And that's what I fall asleep to. But I think that's why I didn't know the ending part about um, Charles Manson, because I think I always fall asleep before it gets there. But I've watched lots of documentaries on it. I would never be able to do that before bed. Oh my gosh. I need to watch like the most like happy. Unicorns, unicorns, <laughs> like Fuller House or like some wicked happy Friends. family show. Yeah, something like that. Even more happy. Um, all right, let's get into the last function, Mary. And I know we had talked about this a little bit earlier, right? Um, it's escape, right? So they're escaping something. So a lot about, can you talk about like the fantasies and stuff? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so escape from non-preferred activities or demands. Um, so this might include escaping from relationships, from debt, um, or being caught or imprisoned. Um, visionary killers might be included in this category, uh, and by committing the murders um, that their hallucinations have bid them to, the voices or visions might go away. Um, or another theory that many forensic psychologies um, apply to serial killers is the abandonment theory um, or escaping discomfort. And this is kind of what you guys talked about as well, um, is that a study of their histories revealed that um, because of the abuse and neglect in their childhood and adult life, that they might be kind of feeling that again um, when they become adults um, or when they're going through certain stages of their life. And by by committing these burgers, they're kind of finding a way to escape those uncomfortable feelings. Um, an example being a Berkowitz again, uh, he was abandoned by his mother within days of his birth um, and he was adopted, but he uh, tracked down his biological mother as a young adult and learned the truth about why he was given up. And around that same time, he began committing a series of homicides. And those who have studied his history claim that the meeting of his birth mother was the crisis or the antecedent uh, to his criminal actions. And then we have Bundy, um, who was raised by his grandparents and told that his mother was his older sister. And after he discovered the truth, he reportedly felt unloved by his mother. And his first girlfriend was upper class and Bundy revealed in a documentary actually that his girlfriend led to a lot of self-doubt within him um, due to that class difference. And he reported that he ended the relationship as a sort of revenge on her to escape those feelings of discomfort. And almost all of his victims afterwards physically resembled that, what that first girlfriend looked like, uh, which made a lot of psychologists theorize that the victims reminded him of her and his insecurities. And that's why he ended up committing a lot of those murders. Wow. Um, and we also have Edmund Kemper, um, who is another example of a serial killer, a necrophile, and a cannibal, actually, uh, who may have committed his crimes as a mean of escaping. Uh, his mother was also very abusive and would often yell at him. Um, according to Kemper, following several arguments, he would drive out to seek out his victims, uh, whom he would torture, rape, uh, kill, dismember, and eat. And finally, he ended up killing his own mother, decapitated her, and cut out her tongue. And according to Kemper in a documentary, um, she had she used to scream and yell at him for so many years. And that was kind of why it brought up those same feelings um, in him when he committed these uh, murders and dismembering them, that he went for something that reminded him of what caused him all this grief. Um, and so there's just some of the cases where forensic psychologists have claimed that homicides were a mean uh, of escaping from troubled feelings and memories, um, and sometimes even the people themselves. So interesting. You know, I want to say behavioral here, but there's something that is fascinating to me always that I've thought about, because um, I, again, I watch a lot of murder stuff. And, you know, when we think about people who are, you know, there's someone who really bullies us or there's someone who we hate or our boss is mean or, you know, like, I just want to get rid of this person. Like, if you think in the most primal instinct in terms of like animals, it'd be like, I kill this animal, right? Like, they're bothering me, I kill them, I, I whatever it is. And it's fascinating to me. It shows that there is some deeper level in humans. And again, this is not behavioral. It's just showing like whatever it is, this morality or something, what there is, because these people are doing it. And I feel like it's almost like very, um, 
like functionally, it's like, oh, I don't like this person. I don't like this environment they're putting me in. I don't like the task they're giving me. I'll just get rid of them, which like one way is so fucked up. But another way, I think it kind of shows that we have some deeper level in terms of, I don't know, to say morality or um, rule governed behavior. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. Or I don't know what it is, but like, if you think about it functionally, it's like, I mean, thank God people don't go to this, but it's, you know, if you just look at like a basic animal, like I want this gone, right? Like Pavlov, she took my bone. I will try to do whatever I can to get the bone remover, like whether I have to bite the shit out of her, I don't know. Um, but it's just, I mean, these are obviously the extreme and abnormal and creepy and crazy. Um, so I read something um, yeah. about Kemper, like you had just talked about, Um and so what they what this article is mentioning was that fantasy in childhood is normal, right? Like we all have fantasies or whether it's we have uh, imaginary friends or whatever it may be. Um, but sometimes it becomes such um, a compulsion, right, of escape. It's like a compulsion um, of a form of escapism in children who are abused or neglected. And what he had said, because his mother did abuse him for so long, was I knew long before I started killing that I was going to be killing that it was going to end up like this. The fantasies were too strong and they were going on for too long and were too elaborate. So think of like that history of reinforcement for those fantasies, right? Going on for so long that it results. And he even said, I knew I was going to be a killer. Like that is an interesting thing that I read. Ugh, so dark. But you're trying to escape something serious, like this trauma that may have happened to him or whatever it may be. And whatever reason it is that you result um in these extreme like i guess psychotic right i don't know mary would they be you know it'd be considered psychosis right yeah definitely um and a lot of personalities disorders coming up as well um and like you mentioned fantasy is definitely an escape for them um just kind of whether that's the kind of coping that they've developed because of the abuse and neglect um, and as adults, this is where they seek out that fantasy again, whenever something reminds them of that time in their lives when they're really uncomfortable, they just go back to that coping skill that they've developed. And unfortunately, they're at an age where they feel like that's not enough. So I need to actually carry out these fantasies so that maybe I can escape that discomfort. Yeah, wow. you know, those behaviors are strengthened over time. If it makes you feel better, what are you going to do? Do it again, right? That's that reinforcement so these multiple these you know these killers who are killing multiple times i would say the behavior's obviously been reinforced and so we spoke about the four functions so there is some reinforcement there and do you think any of this is due to the system or that you know like the correction system prison system are we failing somehow these people are able to do it or are they just so smart that we can't find them talk to us mary tell me I think the system definitely plays a part of it um, and just giving resources as well. Um, and their recidivism rates are so high. And uh, when you study a lot of these serial killers, there's been a lot of red flags that kind of come up um, where somebody could have caught it and they could have sought out resources that may have helped them. Um, but a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't catch this until after they've committed a string of murders. Um, and then we kind of study their histories. But by then, that's kind of too late as well. So maybe there's like precursors that we could, you know, same way when we're working with a kid who's like, 
all right, when they start scratching their nose, they're usually about to punch me in the face, right? Like maybe there's some precursors we could look for. Yeah, definitely some uh, precursors that we could look for are just um, children that are in the foster system. Um, and like I mentioned before, a lot of these kids were given up for adoption and maybe just even following them through uh, their teenage years and young adult years, um, just to assess for how they're feeling about that, checking in, providing um, services if needed, providing therapy, um, and making sure that they're just adjusting well. Interesting. You know, um, and just for listeners, to compare this to, you know, what you're working clinically, maybe in a setting with kids with autism or with anyone or whether it's your boyfriend, you know, a lot of the times we could intervene at the start of a behavior chain. When we see, you know, a, and yes, it's more complicated when there's murder involved, but I'm just saying, so let's say you have a client and you know, when they start itching their nose, they're about to punch you in the face, right? You've seen that history of the behavioral chain in the past. So, act while they are in that itching their nose phase. Like I'm going to remove the demand right now before you remove the demand once they punch you in the face, because then they're seeing, oh, I'm reinforced for punching in the face. Um, the same goes for uh, a murder here. I mean, it's much more difficult. And again, I am no expert in murder, even though I think I am because I listen to a lot of podcasts and TV shows, but maybe there's things we could look for ahead of time and pay close attention. I mean, even these mass shootings we hear about, there's often a lot of patterns of this person's been putting weird shit out on YouTube for a while, or they've been writing letters. Like we need to pay attention to these precursors because I think that we could probably do more if we catch something in an early phase before it's too late and we're dealing with something that the consequences now are just too, um, you know, they're going to jail is what basically is going to happen. And then in the system, they're probably not going to get the help they need or the therapy or rehab they need um, and just perpetuates it. I also think that, um, and Mary, maybe you can touch on this, is that I'm looking at all these four functions, right? And if we even, even when we think of a child's behavior or any of our behavior, right? Typically it's multiply maintained, right? There are multiple functions. It's not just like they're only doing it for attention and that's it, right? The more functions that are maintaining it, I would say the stronger the behavior. And now that you're a BCBA, Mary, is this something that you um, understand more? Yeah, definitely. And a lot of these, this behavior, it may initially be an escape, but then like you mentioned, once they start engaging in these behaviors, these homicides, they realize, oh, it's stimulating or it gets me all this attention. And then as a result, now it's hitting on all these other functions. And like you mentioned, that's just reinforcing. They realize this is actually so fun. It's meeting so many of my needs. Um, and then they end up doing it again and again. Yep. And we know about that, you know, the more you do something and the more you get reinforced, the stronger that behavior becomes. And sometimes, and maybe, I don't know about this, but like the punishment may not be punishing enough, right? Or it might not even be punishment. It might be reinforcement. I mean, to be honest, I've always thought of that. I'm like, if I was homeless on the street, didn't know where my next meal was coming from, I'm already like around like other people who are like, on drugs, creepy on the streets. Prison sounds a shit ton better. You know, you have a shelter, you have a meal every day, you have this. And so I think it's really important to think, I mean, for me, prison is, I don't know if I've ever told you this, it's literally like my biggest fear in the world. Not that I'm doing anything for it, but I am petrified of prison. And I like really what's your What's the it. scariest part for you? For me, it would be claustrophobia. No, mine would be like, 
Well, I have like an irrational fear of needles, which is I have an irrational fear of AIDS. And I think everyone's going to poke me with a needle and I'm like, it's dirty there. And then I'm thinking, what about like pooping in public? I don't care about that. That's fine. Um, I mean, everything about prison just creeps me out, but I'm fascinated by it. But I think we have to realize, like, for me, that's creepy. I'm living like a cushy life over here in a house, you know. But to some people, like, is that really that punishing for them? If they're actually now getting a meal every day, they don't have to worry about um, a roof over their head. Yeah. Getting in to see a doctor if they need one, if they're really sick, they'll, you know. Mary, before we wrap up today, um, we wanted to just talk about so you were you know you were a forensic psychologist well you are right you're you know but you've transitioned into early intervention ABA can you tell us about that yes um it's quite a transition uh going from uh working for adult forensics uh to working with toddlers now um and I must say it's much more enjoyable (laughs) working with younger kids Um, you see a lot more progress um and it's just more fun as well um and unfortunately working with adults is just very difficult um and that's something that i feel like i don't really miss um so i'm probably gonna stay with the kids there you go i know i worked with adults for a long time and we had chatted about that history of reinforcement you know if you're uh you know the parents or someone will be like hey can you um you know work on this behavior and it's like oh sure they're 26 and they've literally been reinforced for 26 years this is what's gotten them this you know every single time that they engage in that behavior, you give them that, and now you want us to change it. That's really, really hard when you're working with an adult versus a two-year-old, right? Right. Thanks okay. for agreeing with me. I love when people agree with me. <laughs> we lost you right there. All right, Mary, well, we are going to wrap up, and thank you so much for coming on to share your views from a, a clinical perspective on serial killers and the four functions of murder. Well, thank thank you. you for having me. So interesting. I'm obsessed with this stuff, so I really appreciate it. Guys, as always, you know where to find us and love you. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 